Today's episode of Pivot Points is made possible by listeners like you. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, please remember to leave us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our community. This podcast explores the dynamics at play when we make the critical decisions that determine the course of our lives. We all make most decisions on limited information. Sometimes the outcomes are great, other times they're not. Regardless, there are lessons to be learned in the process. I hope this episode gives all of you a new perspective, whether you're currently serving, are a veteran like me, or regardless of background, are just interested in exploring the unique paths my guests have taken and examining their decision-making process. And with that, let's dive in. All right, Kevin Kerr, welcome. Hey, thanks, Chris. So uh, I'm glad we got to this before we all kind of parted ways. Uh, it's interesting. So I've known Kevin since 2011, but uh, you know our paths have kind of crisscrossed throughout. Um, we were both in the same unit in Germany. He he joined us downrange in Afghanistan, and then uh, and then about I think a year, maybe two years into being at Seventh Group, we we're like in the gym. I see this big ogre looking dude who's lifting a lot of weight i'm like oh it's kevin yeah just locking eyes across the gym yeah, yeah no big deal <laughs> i like pretended to put more weight on <laughs> actually my last set man yeah, it's yeah. Weird. yeah. <laughs> kevin i'll lift a lot of weight don't worry about it <laughs> respect me <laughs> so welcome thanks yeah, so, so much this is actually just a dating site uh this podcast is how to track guys in the gym if you guys are interested yeah i'm bad at it kevin's good at it so we're gonna talk about that but you have to wait to the end <laughs> Um, so putting that aside for a little bit, uh, tell me a little bit about you, where you're from and, uh, kind of what ended up drawing you to the military. Yeah. So from Pennsylvania, like hour outside of Philly, um, which direction? West of Philly. Okay. Yep, so like suburbia. So uh, is that like, is there a line where it's sorry, where it's like close to being a Pittsburgh fan or like, uh, yeah, but it's like hours. It's like probably central PA. So maybe two hours, three hours. I'm like one hour. So I'm pretty comfortably in the, in the Eagle side. Got it. Uh, although I'm a fair weather fan. So if any Philly guys are out there, apologize, but it's kind of the way it is. They all hate you now. Yeah. Fucking suburbia. Um, yeah. Okay. So from Pennsylvania outside of Philly, our West, um, didn't really think about the military uh, initially kind of came on a, a bit of a whim. It was my junior year of high school. Didn't really know what to do. Um, but at that same time, the Saddam statue was getting pulled down and my dad and his friends were at our house and they were kind of drinking and celebrating when they saw the statue come down and me being like a, whatever, a 16 year old with a lot of emotions, I kind of thought like, Hey, you guys didn't do anything. I don't know why you're the cheering. Um, but then as I thought about more about that, I thought to myself, okay, well, that's really how you feel. Then you should probably go serve. So I was like, okay, what are service options? And I still want an education. So I Googled, you know, I think it was like education and military and West Point and Annapolis popped up. So I looked at those and I asked my dad, I was like, Hey, is this, are these good schools? And he was like, yeah, these are awesome schools. I was like, hey, okay, well, can we start the process? And so that's how it started. Um, ended up getting into West Point and then, you know, did the West Point thing. And then, so real quick, but I mean, back it up. You, yeah. 16, you didn't really think you were going to necessarily go in the military mm -hmm. that like scene has an impactful moment in your life. Mm -hmm. But like, what were the criteria you were looking at for school? Was it solely focused? Like once you kind of chose that direction, you had blinders on or was it like, Hey, I, I kind of want a little bit of a party scene totally failed there. You went to West point. Yeah. Um, like did you have criteria and kind of what was the thought process? 
Yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, that was really my only two criteria. It was, okay, serve, uh, and then best education I could get. So okay. yeah, under those criteria, it was like West Point and Annapolis were kind of the two going back and forth. And then under that, underneath that, I was applying to some ROTC programs. I think Duke was like probably the top ROTC program I was applying for. So uh, now once that hit me, I kind of focused on that and just kind of drove ahead in that direction. Um, and then as I focused between Annapolis and West Point, I went to this thing called the Summer Seminar Program, which is like you go is I think it's like right the summer before your senior year of high school, and you you spend a week as a cadet at West Point or a whatever sailorman or Annapolis, and you do like a week of a cadet life there, and you see how how it goes. And I just connected more so with the West Point guys than I did with the Annapolis guys. So actually, Annapolis was my first choice. I ended up switching it. I used my congressional whatever for West Point, and then ended up going there. And pretty much just based on the people, not like a thought about what, what the job you wanted after you graduated was, anything like that? Nope. Got it. No, it was, I mean, really like Annapolis had everything, it was like nicer, cleaner, prettier. The town was nice. Uh, and West Point was like the opposite. It was like no air conditioning. Everything was like back in the 1700s you have, or 1800s. You have to wear like wool clothes and like there really wasn't anything to do. But like the dudes are cool. And I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to do four years of something, I'd rather do it with you know good bros than nice places. So. Fair. I mean, pretty pretty solid representation of like at least army facilities versus, versus <laughs> yeah. navy facilities are yeah. large. Yeah, yeah. They put, they probably revealed too much to me to be honest. If I was a smarter man, I probably would have just gone to Duke. But hey, whatever it worked out. Yeah, or it's working out so far. Well, you had a choice between good options, which is you know nothing wrong there. And yeah. so as you kind of go through West Point, um, you know it's definitely a pretty arduous way to live, right? Like. Uh, you're not sleeping under your sheets because you got to make your bed every morning and it takes too much time. Yeah. Um, all different things like that. And like a lot of people have a negative stereotype of West Pointers, which I think I was quickly dissuaded of. Like I learned very early that West Pointers can be awesome people because uh, I was in infantry, you know, training with the best of the West Point class. Yeah. And all those guys were incredible. You're an awesome dude too. Uh, you never lost your sense of humor. So, you know, how was West Point for you writ large and, and kind of what led you to your eventual choice of like what you wanted to do in the military? Yeah. Uh, so my West Point experience was shaped a lot by rugby. You know, I think you have a different experience at West Point, whether you're on like a protected sports team or, or you're not on a protected sports team. And I just happened to be. So a lot of the kind of some of the things that you come to expect from West Point I didn't have to deal with, like some of the like doing laundry duties or doing drills or stuff like that I just didn't have to not I didn't have to touch it so I just had a bit of unique experience in that I had more of a camaraderie with the team and the guys around me and I didn't have to worry about um, some duties or some rules that you know other cadets might have had to and I, I guess as I come out of West Point West Point was really good at making you manage your time but it was also pretty good at like prioritizing what's important and what's not important and so you know the kind of thing I tell people at West Point help show you which rules you don't need to follow because if you follow every rule you run out of time and then you don't get anything done and you probably have no friends yeah <laughs> you also have no friends but yeah <laughs> poor guys yeah um they're I'm, out there I'm, hey that's a method i'm not saying you don't have to do that uh that's a method if you want to do it that way but if you're going to west point uh you know time is your most valuable asset so think about how you're spending it no and that's 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 a really good point because i think the quality i've probably seen most is task management and the ability to filter at an early age, like what's good and what's not, what's, what's relevant, um, from all the West pointers I know. I feel like I know a lot of really incredible West pointers. Um, but you also had some great opportunities while you were there, right? You studied abroad you yeah. did some other things. Yeah. So I went abroad, uh, my junior year to China. Um, and that was probably the best 
experience that the army has given me. You know, I'm in, I've been in nine years now. And uh, that was awesome because what they did was they essentially gave you a check. So I did four months in China. They gave you a check for $6,000 and they said, hey, go to China and this is the money you have. You can use it as little or as much as you want. We're not going to ask for any receipts and when you come back, you know, it's yours. So it was a lot of responsibility, but it was also a lot of freedom, which I mean, even now as a captain, I don't have that. You still, I still have to owe, I still owe receipts when I'm done traveling, but right. as a junior cadet at West Point traveling four months in China, I mean, there was like no, there was like no rules for four months. I mean, there, that, there were rules. Wink, wink, but, 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 <laughs> <laughs> let me take that back. There were rules. There were a lot of rules. Um, but I guess in terms of like budgetary restrictions, it was very minimal. Kev killed a guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so still rules, but yeah. but you had freedom. And yeah. that's insane. Like I can't yeah. think of, of a situation where, yeah, the military or any organization doesn't care about the money. They're just like, hey, go do good things. Yeah. Uh, and it was awesome because uh, like I'm, I mean, I don't know if this is going to paint a good picture for the foreign language department, but it, it should for those who have like a holistic environment or like holistic approach to life. But like for us, we wanted, I mean, our money went really far in China. So for one of the nights, we just wanted to see if we could like rent out the bar and, you know, bring anybody who wanted a drink to get them a drink. So we like put a vat of like Long Island iced tea or whatever in the corner and anyone came up who wanted to drink could have a drink and when we just filled it up, you know, eight, there was like eight of us. So we just filled it up throughout the night. Yeah. And, uh. At the end of the night, we got the bill. And we're like, when we split it up between us, and we thought it was going to be thousands of dollars, but it just ended up like, I think it was two hundred dollars per person. And so it was like, it was a really cool experience to like, okay, it just ended up like that, and we just paid for it, and we were done. But if everyone was worried about the receipt or like how this was going to turn out or or all the ramifications, you know, decisions like that wouldn't have been made. So I think the freedom allows people to kind of stumble through things a little bit more than they would otherwise. Yeah, and, and you're taking classes while you're there too, so it's not like yeah. you're just... No, 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 it's not like a four-month vacation. You get, I think we took like five classes a day, and you know, it's just like normal school. Yeah. And so like outside of just the experience, and you probably got at least somewhat decent at Mandarin. Um, yeah. What What's like the most, you know, and I'm sure you had great friends too, but like what did you learn the most out of that trip? Yeah, so kind of the thing, one of the things that really surprised me was the... We have like teacher assistants who are like one-on-one proctors and but they were like our age or younger and i just remember sitting next to them and like you know we're supposed to be like hard-working dudes from west point and we are but like compared to their work ethic i remember the them just kind of blowing my mind in terms of like they don't even consider kind of free time or they don't really value it or you know they're just very willing to work for either themselves or for the government or, or for their family so to see that work ethic and to see like in our relative positions i was probably better off so to see them working so hard and still be at a position that, um, you know, they're not getting that rewards really kind of threw me back. And it was probably one of the, one of the first times I realized we're like, Hey, there's people in this world that are working harder than me. And that's something I need to realize moving forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think we all say it all the time and I don't want to like belabor the point, but like, it's pretty awesome to be born in America yeah. and like have the privileges that are associated with that. Um, kind of across the board. Yeah. And like once you travel the world, you kind of see that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it shows you you're not as individual as you think you are. Like a lot right. of your success is kind of based off your circumstances totally. and your timing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a little humility there. Like a little gratitude as well. Cause like, hey, I have this, I'm in this cool place with this money for a certain amount of time. But also it's like, hey, I didn't get here because of like my unique abilities. I kind of got here based off circumstances. Yeah. To, to a degree at least. There's, it's at least a factor. Yeah. It's definitely a factor. 
Um, and you come back from that. Had you already kind of decided what you wanted to do in the military at that point? Because this is your junior year. You've been playing rugby for three years now. Yeah. You just have this incredible experience in China. Yeah. Um, what was your thought process on like, hey, I have to figure out what branch of the, the army I want to serve in? Yeah. So that, that was kind of something I, I kind of had to like harken back to why I joined in the first place. And it was to serve. Yeah, ultimately, like when, you know, same that same story I was on my couch. So there was like kind of a couple paths where I could have like kind of gone a branch where may or may not have served or may, have not, may or may not have served in like a combat environment. There might have been a window for me to keep playing rugby for a little while, or I could have like gone the infantry route. And it's like, okay, if you're going the infantry route, you're going to go try and look for deployment. And uh, ultimately, that was the one I decided, mainly just because, hey, I'm in this West Point experience to serve. Like, I didn't, I didn't come for any other reason. So, uh, yeah, that kind of made the choice for me once I understood, you know, the reasons I was there. So you chose infantry. Yep. Uh, logic is not just service because I mean everybody's serving, but you yeah. wanted to serve at the point where you thought you could have the most impact and and kind of be in a combat arms branch that would put you in, not just in harm's way, but to lead soldiers in yeah. that environment, right? Yeah. And I think that's common for um, people that age is like, hey, test your metal and like understand the things you learned and like, hey, how good of a leader you are. And a lot of those things aren't tested unless you're put in like a stressful or complicated situation. So a lot right. of people that want to demonstrate those abilities will seek those kind of challenges. Awesome. So you commission, go through infantry training, yep. go to ranger school. Yep. That's fun, right? Yeah, I didn't do so hot. That I mean, I graduated, but like, yeah, I think I've recycled first phase. Um, I was just kind of going through their motions, like I mean, West Point training. Like, I guess like when you do the athlete thing, and then you have like military training, it's kind of like yeah. seen as and it's just relative importance isn't there. So I kind of had that same attitude in Ranger School um, until I recycled the first phase, and I was like, okay, uh, I don't, I, I don't really want to buckle down. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to fail this because that would be a terrible start for my career. Uh, so yeah, buckled down and then and then got through it, but. Yeah, I did ranger school in, I don't know, the winter of 11, I think. Yeah, fun times. Yeah, oh yeah, sweet. Yeah, summer's way better, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I do well in the I winter. I would imagine. I do, I do? do well in the winter. Yeah, okay. I sweat too much in the summer and I breathe too hard and it's just kind of all around unsightly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. And then you graduate that. Do you do anything else or are you, you showing up to Germany shortly after that? Yeah, so it was Germany. So that's like when we kind of, our timeline converges a little bit. So pick Germany because they were deployed. And so, hey, you get to Germany, there's a chance you go, you meet them in Afghanistan. You know, as a young second lieutenant, it's like, yeah, that's what we want to do. And Germany's an awesome spot just by itself. So went to Germany. Yeah, I was there for like a month and then ended up going to um, Afghanistan. And I think they were already there for about six months, right? Five, six yeah. months. So and spent the last six months with you guys. And so I, I think there's, it's worth pointing out now because, you know, we'll get to your whole career and like what you've done, but, um, we were up in Kunduz province and yep. what district were you in specifically? Cause you were down kind of like over to the West, I think. Yeah. I started just West of Kunduz. Um, I think it was Isakhan or yeah, it's how they call it. That's what they call it now is Isakhan checkpoint. It's like North of Chardar, but essentially just like West of the city. And then later I moved to Kanabad, which is, you know, about 20 minute, 30 minute drive East of Kunduz. Cool. In a different district. So you get about six months there. I mean, relatively stable environment at that point. Like mm -hmm. we're projecting like forces out everywhere. Like yeah. ec the super, economy's picking up. Like Yeah, super safe. Yeah. Just kind of walking around. Uh, I think so we did like security on the western side of the city, but you know, there was no contact or um, any enemy presence. So at some point, you know, we were transitioned to go to East of Conabad and help the police station stand up its like logistics and supply forces or supply systems. And that was also, you know, 
terms of combat that you know non-existent but it was more so like understanding the systems of the new afghan government so for me um that deployment was really the turning point where i i learned about sf like i didn't special forces i didn't really know about it before yeah. uh, but we had a team right down the road from us that yeah. were awesome yeah. and uh super easy to work with and you saw the outsized impact they were having yeah on like a district of three hundred thousand people yeah um and so their team sergeant was kind of like hey man like give this a shot i think you'd be good at it yeah um which I hadn't considered before. I thought I was going to do four years and, and get out of the army. Yeah. Initially, uh, was that a moment where where you kind of knew? Is that the first time you thought about special forces? No. What was that kind of path for you? Yeah. So you know, came out of that deployment with no combat experience. I, I mean, combat experience in terms of like conducting a mission, but not in terms of like responding to the enemy. Um, so I wanted I wanted another crack at it. Um, so when we deactivated after we came back, there was an opportunity for me to go to the 82nd, and they were deployed forward. So I would go to the second and jump back into Afghanistan. So that was the path I took was like, okay, still want to test my metal, still want to get that experience. Uh, and that's what happened. I ended up, I left Germany and then within like 10 days, I was back in Afghanistan. So I think like my bags were packed from Germany to go to Afghanistan. My car stayed in Charleston for six months or three months or whatever it was. And then I pretty much hopped to Fort Bragg, got in a plane and then head back east. Okay. So just timeline for everybody else. We returned from Afghanistan, like, yep. you know, mid-February, something like that. Yep. 2012. Yep. You deployed back to the States in yep. what, like, the, July, August? Yeah. We had like four months of like deactivation where we like turning in all our equipment. Yeah. It was like super that. fun. It was awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, I actually didn't mind it because it yeah. was like, hey, no training, turn in your equipment and then you guys get 40 weekends every weekend. So I was like, yeah, this, is, this isn't bad. Yeah. I was holding a <laughs> bag, like turning in equipment for a long time. So it was, yeah. it was less enjoyable. Yeah. Um. Okay, cool. And then what, like July, August, you're back in Afghanistan? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was July. I think it was July 4th or 5th. I was flying back in. So okay. If I remember correctly, and I spent about three months there coming out like September, August of 2012. And, and that, oh, good. No. So when you, when you get there, like what happens? Do you take a platoon right away? Another group of, you know? Yeah. So this is kind of a wild story. Um, so I came into Afghanistan. Um, my buddy who I played rugby with, uh, as I came in, his platoon, he was a platoon leader for his platoon. They had like a small, a small checkpoint or, or outpost down in southern Afghanistan. Um, he actually, the guy in front of him stepped on an ID. So my so my buddy got shot in the face. He was medevaced out. Um, and then someone else came in for him. He got in trouble. And then three days later, I came in uh, to take over my friend's platoon down in southern Afghanistan. So kind of came into a, just a lot of different transition points. And then I was in charge of, uh, or the platoon was in charge of like a, it was almost just like a 30 by 30, like square Hesco barrier compound. Uh, and then we were responsible for, we had a patrol every day. We had to protect a corridor north of us. And then we were also setting up a ALP checkpoint a couple of kilometers north of us. So really pretty spread pretty thin. And then Southern Afghanistan's, you know, a hotbed of Taliban activity. So it was also pretty kinetic, uh, when we were down there. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of, uh, like all that experience I didn't get combat wise enough in the first deployment, you know, came back a lot in the second deployment. And so like just from a, like a leadership challenge perspective, what was that like? It's your buddy's platoon. So like you would initially think that you'd be able to come in, like at least hit them up on personalities, yeah. try to win over the platoon some, but also the guy right before you got in trouble, he was there for how long? Like a three couple days, three days, three yeah. days. Yeah. Um, so like there's a serious incident that's probably being investigated there yeah um and your split spread then you're doing three different things that are like persistent right yeah and how many guys do you have total i think we had like 28 i think 
All right, so, so. And then, so I think it was like, it might end up being like round 40 because what happened was, you're right, there's an investigation for that, you know, that guy in the middle between my buddy and I. And because of that investigation, half the people were being investigated, so they couldn't participate in combat operations. So we took the remainder of that platoon and we, we smushed together another small platoon. And then so we had like two half platoons together on this checkpoint that I was in charge of. And then we like tried to divvy out operations within those four or five squads. Okay. Yeah. So like a little stressful. I'm sure that like the guys weren't, didn't have like the highest morale either in no. an environment like that. No. Um, yeah. So the, yeah. And it was, uh, it was very, I mean, there's like almost two different cultures of the, we'll say like platoon, like the old platoon and the new platoon. They mm-hmm. just come in, they very different cultures. The platoon sergeant who's like our number two and in, in, in charge. I mean, he had his, he had his boys that came with him. So he was very protective of those guys. I was in charge of both of them. So it was like, I had to balance his favoritism versus, you know, making sure the other, the other platoon was taken care of as well. And then like, while also trying to focus on the mission. So there was, and then property was also split up between the teams. So, uh, it was just a lot. Like when you talk about like trying to get people on the same page, like you realize how much of a struggle that can be when, when everyone's on the same page or when people have competing interests, uh, in it. Right. I mean, especially with with the platoon sergeant who like comes in with more, like more confidence, more experience, yeah. and you know, also Wasta with his guys because he's been there for a long time. Yeah. So it's, it's a super difficult situation to be in as like a young officer. Yeah. Yeah. There's some good challenges there in terms yeah. of in terms of like <laughs> figuring out what I would let slide or what wouldn't what I wouldn't let slide. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and you know. And so it's probably hard to like pick out one thing as the, the lesson you learned out of that experience, but I'm sure it was just like managing people and keeping that balance, which it sounds like you'd already built at West Point a little bit. I mean, there's, there's one takeaway. There's one major takeaway I take from that experience. Um, and it was, so to paint the picture, when we first started, we know we're in this little checkpoint we would take contact daily and we just like, we had no idea where the enemy was coming from. We weren't getting, we weren't killing anybody. We weren't making any progress and we were always on the defensive and you know i didn't like that i didn't like that setup we weren't we just weren't we were reacting the entire time so i was trying to think of a way to like surprise the enemy and they said that the infill routes that the enemy takes along the tree lines that that are around the perimeter of our camp and so why don't we insert ourselves in those tree lines and then we can move within the rat lines that the taliban make and it's like because they said that's where the caches are as well and it's like, hey, that's not a good idea. That's like, you know, all these things have IEDs on them. And really, you know, that's not the smartest thing to do. And, you know, I I heard the advice, but I thought I put more weight in like, hey, it'll be a novel thing to like surprise the enemy. And so we, we decided to do it anyway. And as I walked to the tree line, um, we were like, you know, you walk in kind of like a single file line to the tree line. We were clearing. And then, you know, one of the Afghan dudes come up to me and he like takes a knee just like a good soldier does. And, you know. I don't, you, you don't really ship Afghans. Like some of them are good. Some of them aren't. And the ones that are good, you're like, you're like, you get a smile on your face. You're like, all right, man, you know, there's some hope here. Like they're doing yeah. the right thing. This is awesome. And this, he was one of them. So he took a knee next to me. He like asked me like, Hey, you know, what can I do to help? And, uh, he was, uh, I think he was a team leader. And I was like, Hey man, like our guys are clearing. Just need you to go up and have your guys pull security and, you know, just take a knee and face out pretty much. And he was like, okay, cool. And so he went up to the front and, um, I watch him go up there and then a couple minutes later you hear an explosion and that's the you know whenever that happens so close to you know it's an ied that went off and you know it's probably someone stepped on it and and it was that guy who actually stepped on it and when it, 
the people told me that who was up there was that he went up there to do exactly what I said to put those guys in security and face out. Um, but when he directed someone to go put in security, he had stepped outside the cleared path and stepped on an ID and, and then uh, ended up losing his leg and then lost like from his mouth pretty much above. Mm. Uh, so the last like took like the top part of his face off, um, and he ended up dying four days later. And so uh, initially, when I walked back, and then as I think about it more, and I think about the reasons why I made that decision, um, they weren't they were hard to justify because of what we lost. Um, just to be novel against the enemy, you know, to me didn't sit well for a guy that we just lost because of uh, because of my ill decision making. So moving forward from there, that was kind of the last time I decided like I'm going to make a decision without being informed or without truly understanding what I'm trying to do. And uh, I would say that was that was probably the moment where I turned from like at least in my opinion from like an officer to a professional like a professional like a master of his task and it's like is confident in his ability because he's competent um whereas in that way i think before that i was probably trying to be more confident than competent and you know obviously the results were fatal for that guy so that was probably the biggest takeaway i got from that deployment to be honest well thanks for sharing that's that's a great story yeah Uh, oh i mean a great experience to learn from you know i mean you yeah we all deal with imperfect information all the time yeah um and it has more dire consequences in in that situation than it does in in real life yeah you know so yeah that's good i mean i don't know how how many people are going to be in that situation i mean it'll come again for the young officers that you know are here after us um and you're everyone tells you like what type, like what a leader should look like at West Point or the other ROTC academies or leadership leadership books in general, but they don't really tell you the internal mechanisms that should be working to like drive your decisions. Um, you talk about values and principles and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, you like you need to make decisions that you're confident in and you understand fully, so that you can tell people what's going on if things go badly. And uh, something I wish I could have inherited, you know, before making those decisions. But hopefully, some people do a better job than I did moving forward. And as you come back from that deployment and look at what's next, because you've been in the army at this point for like two or three years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, did and was SF already on your radar? Or was that really the point where hey, you'd been chasing, going to combat, testing your metal? Yeah, um, you you got that opportunity with the eighty second. Yeah, and and what kind of drove you to go to special forces? Yeah, so kind of another story there. Um, that AOP checkpoint I was talking about. Yeah, uh, nobody wanted it. Um, there was no AOP in the area. No one was really asking for it, but we were doing it anyway because uh, that was, you know, that's, yeah, you do what you're told a little bit. So we were doing that, but so we had a checkpoint that we built a checkpoint, but we had to defend the checkpoint, the route between the checkpoint and our base, and then our base, and we also had to conduct combat patrols every day. So just we just didn't have enough bodies. So we had like one truck that like kind of patrolled the route and then also looked at the checkpoint as best as it could as it moved up and down the route every day. Um, but it got to a point, well. We were doing that until the ALP from another area would come in and occupy the, the base. So it was like, I think we're waiting like on a month for someone to come occupy it. So for a month, we were about watching, we were watching that checkpoint. And so it came a day when someone was going to come and like do the ceremony and someone was like going to take the checkpoint that we made. And uh, even though nobody wanted it, and yeah. I think they're just going to come in the morning. And just to explain real quick, AOPs, Afghan local police, it's like yeah. police that have been trained by either, you know, army forces or special forces yeah. to defend their local villages. Yeah. They're just, it's too big of a country. There aren't enough police that are paid full time yeah. to do all the work. Yeah. Like little militia bars. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah so like we heard that like no one really wanted the base but like somebody would come and like occupy it for the morning so it looked like someone had it and then if they wanted it they'd keep it if not they'd go back but it sounded like they were gonna go back anyway so i was like all right you know obviously it's a little frustrating for our part because we're doing all this stuff um but whatever you know those are bigger pieces than i was than i was responsible for so i remember going to the grand opening of the checkpoint uh we start walking into the checkpoint and as one of my guys steps on or steps in there a toe like an id goes off but it's just the initiator um the actual the actual hme doesn't go off so it just like numbs his foot and so we're like oh man this place is written with ids so we pull out and we start clearing it deliberately and as i'm watching the guys it's like mowing the lawn you're kind of watching the guys like mow the lawn but just clearing the ids as i'm watching them clear the ids i take a knee i'm just watching them finish up and as i'm doing it one of the afghans comes up next to me and uh he's like looking at me and i'm like looking at him I'm like hey man what's up and like and then like he gives me like this like shoe this shoe hand gesture <laughs> i'm like hey man it's like 100 degrees outside i'm like covered in dust like i don't really feel like playing like shoe games and uh he was like no like he was emphatic hey move move so i like got up and i moved over and then like he goes down and he brushes the top of the dirt of the dust off and he shows me an ied and so i was kneeling like essentially on an ied and obviously not on it because it would have gone off um but i was in the in the vicinity of an ied and uh and i remember like when he showed me that i was like Ugh. i was like dude i almost took a knee on an id i mean that if it didn't kill me it would it would have hurt me pretty badly and i remember walking back from that from that grand opening being like man i could have lost my legs doing something that nobody wanted in this country and so that was kind of when i decided like hey I want to help these people. I want to, I want to, I enjoy this like train advisor assist mission, um, but I want the freedom to make my own decisions tactically. And so that's when I started looking at special forces and like, okay, if this is what I want to do, this is a path that might open that freedom up for me. Awesome. Yeah. And so like from the time you kind of, you seem like a guy who you pick a direction, you run in it. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. Yeah. Full force. <laughs> for better, for worse. For better, for worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Hope my gut's right. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I mean, you alluded to it earlier. I think there's a data-driven decision-making process going on in there. So yeah. it's not all gut. <laughs> <laughs> but you make the decision how long like before you're at selection, testing your metal, like figuring out if you're going to make it. And, and was that a decision point for you? Like, hey, if I don't make this, I'm not going to stick with it or you know, I'm going to get out of the military and do something else at that point in your career? Yeah. So I came back from, 80, or came back from that deployment. And then I had an opportunity through a friend to be a general's aide. And that general was a special forces guy. So I saw that as like, okay, this is an opportunity to see if this is something I'm interested in. And so I took the job and that put me another year in Afghanistan doing general's aide stuff. Um, and the caveat to do that job was like, hey, you have, to, you have to want to become special forces yourself. And so the decision, like before even selection, this decision was kind of made of like, hey, I will make my best effort to, to do special forces. And I never really thought, about if I fail, um, cause it's kind of very hard to like, it's very hard to like plan for both contingencies, at least in the army. Cause it's like you either go special forces and if you don't, if it doesn't work out, then like you just kind of end up back where you are anyway. So it's not like, I don't need to plan for the, the alternative that much. Yeah. Uh, at least you know, that's how I crunch the numbers. Um, so no, yeah, I just kind of went full force at it and well, I mean, I did that year as a general aid thing. And then after that, I turned up for it. So like, yeah, most people don't want to be a general's aide, but you had the you worked for a pretty awesome yeah. leader. Yeah, he's legit. Uh, and then, and you also kind of had a unique perspective then young, even though you're not like, you know, making decisions, you're at least around 
what's going on at the operational strategic level uh, after you just got back from doing the most tactical things at yeah. a small outpost with a platoon. Yeah. So great experience, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, it's cool seeing like the generals as people because yeah. no one gets that experience. I mean, I was a first lieutenant at the time. So generals are kind of like these demigod figures that like, you know, if you if you say the wrong thing and, you know, your career, Smite you. Yeah, your career is done and you'll be pushed in the corner. Um, but they're not like that. You know, they're, they're normal dudes. And I was able to see that for about a, you know, I was able to see it for a year. I was able to not only like see the humanity in them, um, but also like their frustrations and kind of the consequences of the bureaucracy or kind of the things that they were frustrated about. Or, um, I mean, even as a general, like you're answering to, you're answering to some man, unless you're, unless you're top dog. Um, but even then you're still answering someone. So I think it, it also like uncovered a lot of, or just the depth of the bureaucratic processes, I guess is probably the best way of putting that. Yeah. Probably like strips away a little bit of idealism. Yeah. Shows you that like, these are just good people trying to do the right thing, yeah. but there's a system that is incremental, right? It yeah. takes time. Yeah. It's not like, okay, once I'm done being a major, I'll be good. It's like, no, I could be a general and still be doing shit I don't want to be doing. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of like, um, that's probably where I first started thinking like, man, I don't know if I want to do this as a career, but I still also wanted to try and do the special forces thing. Cause I thought it'd be an awesome experience. Yeah. Um, and I just heard that like, it was like the, it's like the pinnacle, it's like the pinnacle test in leadership because you're like, you're one dude supposed to be in charge of a small team and like small team dynamics are very different than like a platoon dynamics, as you know, or like yeah. company, company dynamics. It's, it's very like interpersonal and you're not like, you're less like managing people's processes. You're more like trying to understand how people function. Like you're trying to like inspire and like get people aligned. So it's, I think it's a lot more intricate than tip than other leadership positions are. I'd agree. Yeah. yeah. And you're just harnessing extremely talented people yeah. who are already capable and like, yeah, yeah, they don't necessarily need your, well, they don't, and it's not necessarily, they don't need any motivation from you to be excellent. They're already great at what they do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 12 dudes who all have been like super successful and competent their whole lives. And now it's, it's not like motivating them in like to do their job. It's sort of like how to get everyone focused on like where we're trying to get the team to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So at this point, you've been deployed to Afghanistan, I guess that that's three times, or is that just, yeah, you yeah, counted yeah. as two? Yeah, it's three. Three? Yeah. Okay. Go through the Q course, uh, qualification course for special forces after making it through selection. Yep. Um, you know, it's what, about 18, 20, 23 months, somewhere in there? Yeah. Yeah, I and think it took me two years all in all. Two years? Yeah. Okay. Until it's said and done. From selection to graduation, about two years. Got it. Yeah, because you went, there's a, a career course now that's incorporated in that. I didn't go to that. So, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you show up at your team and life's perfect, right? Yeah. yeah and that was easy. And yeah, the rest of this is just like a love story. <laughs> 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 um, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, let me let me think about this. Um, so when I showed up to the team, they were about they were about eight months into a twelve month train up for their next deployment. So I came in about month four. So I pretty much came into their pre mission training, which is like their like full mission profile to like be validated to go to deployment. So that was kind of like my first experience with the team. So a lot of it was like me trying to understand a lot of things at one time while also demonstrating that the team can function in Afghanistan. So it was it was just a steep learning curve for me um, when I first showed up. Um. 
but all in all, I mean, all in all, the team is great. Like the, it's it's always different. Like when you first show up to a place, because especially like when you're supposed to be the leader, because right. there's like this expectation to be the leader, but it's also like you also realize you don't really know anything. And this probably ties back to like my second deployment conversation. Is that like, hey, if you don't really know what decisions you need to be making, like it's kind of okay to take a backseat until you're confident in your decisions because there's like you're basing it off something like you don't have to make decisions just to make decisions right you can kind of sit back until you get comfortable until you like orient yourself to make a decision yeah no especially when you're joining an organization that was functioning well before you showed up and it's just a process of manning that they're going to switch people out yeah you know what i mean yeah so and i think a lot of people i think it's like a uh it's a natural tendency when you first become an organization you're supposed to have some sort of leadership i think it's like you feel like you're supposed to come in with a bunch of answers and like, oh, thank God this guy's here because he has a bunch of answers. But really, if there are answers, I mean, they don't reveal yourself. They don't reveal themselves until you understand like all the intricacies behind them. So I think patience is usually good if you have the time. Absolutely. Plus yeah. there are just like we talked about, you have a bunch of incredible smart people that yeah. are on your team. Yeah. So asking them, hey, what do you think the answer is? Yeah. Generally speaking, two or three of them, we're going to have a really good idea. Yeah. That's not a bad start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you trained for eight months, which is, you know, very different from my experience. We, we deployed a lot. Granted, a lot of those deployments weren't Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, but then you go to Afghanistan again, fourth time there. Yeah. We trained for like, I mean, they trained up the whole year. I okay. got in like three or four months before we left. Got it. Okay. Um, so we left in March of 17 and then we deployed back to Kunduz. Um, and then I was in Kunduz for six months coming out October 17. Yeah. Um, and at this point, like just quickly, don't have to go into depth on it, but yeah. you know, where we used to be out in the entire province at this point, you're, you're on the plateau, which is just south of the city and you come off that plateau and it's how far can you go before you're in contact? Yeah. So the city itself is safe. This is just north of the plateau, but there's like rivers that run along the west side of it and like the, the north of it. And anytime you cross through those rivers, you've pretty much, you know, crossing the badland. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the Maginot line to a degree. Um, so when I was there in 2011, you could pretty much drive as much as you wanted west of the city or west of the river and be fine. Um, but now you, you couldn't. So about 400 meters outside the city, but you could, you would start taking contact or you'd at least have IEDs in the road that you'd have to start deliberately clearing. You couldn't, you didn't have freedom of movement. So within a couple of years, you know, security situation was, was looking a lot worse. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of factors for that, which, you know, we won't get into here, but yeah. You complete six months there, you come back, and then you rinse and repeat, right? You- yeah. Yeah. So came back. Um, yeah. Then we did it again. Like, hey, you know, you guys on the safe Afghanistan again, which was, which was good. I mean, I'm totally okay with that. And then we ended up getting the same mission set that we had last deployment. So we ended up seeing the same partner force that we had in 2017, which is like, if there's one thing I'm thankful for, it's that you able to fall back into relationships again that you solidified in 2017 because. And that's like, that, that makes the job so much easier. I mean, we're supposed to be like masters of human terrain or whatever, but like, if you already have these relationships in place and you've already demonstrated your competency or your like your loyalty or whatever, uh, in 17, then you can just come in in 2018 and hit the ground running. Like you don't have to start at square one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't, and you, there's just so many uncertainties that you already have accounted for in terms of like this guy's weaknesses, strengths, how they operate, what are they looking for? Where are the bad guys? Like there's just so much of your pictures already painted for you. That wasn't. You know, if you come into a new, completely new area. Yeah. And so, and so that's what we did again. Uh, we just pretty much defended Kunduz and then moved in the provinces around it and just conducted major combat operations outside the city. 
So this is your fifth deployment to Afghanistan, third deployment to Kunduz province in the north yep. of Afghanistan. Yep. Um, 2018. At this point, do you know what you want to do with your life? Like, I'm, I'm sure there's like an internal debate going on if you're going to stay in the military and stick with special forces and make a career out of it, if you're going to get out and do something else. Yeah. What would that look like for you? And what was like the criteria that you were weighing? Yeah, it started, uh, I started thinking about getting out um, my 17 deployment. Um, and really it was based off like personal reasons in terms of like growth. Like, uh, in my opinion, there comes a time in the military where you need to start worrying about your career because you want to get to 20 years and you want to make sure you get retirement. And really when it, when it goes from mission to career or when it can go from mission to career is about that 10 year mark, because before that 10 year mark as an officer, you can kind of get out and be fine. Um, but after that 10 year mark, you're closer to 20 than you were when you started. And so it becomes more compelling to preserve your career to make sure you get to 20. And so I didn't, I didn't want that inconsistency. Um, or I didn't want that friction when I was trying to value of like mission over mission over me pretty much. Yeah. Um, and I was also getting tired. Um, I was getting a little rundown and I mean, run, Rundowns that rundown sounds weird because it's not like I was happy to do the mission sets, but I also felt like a sense of repetition. I felt like I've kind of learned as much as I could. I felt like I could do my job well, and I felt like I understood the jobs above me. Um, and so I also felt like there there might be a limit to like the personal growth I have in at least the next five years. I mean, you referenced earlier that you kind of switched from being an officer to a professional because you wanted to demonstrate mastery of what you do. Yeah. And so you kind of felt like you'd reached that point, at least as a, as a tactical leader. Yeah. Got yeah. It. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that makes sense. And if you're always going to be someone who's looking for the next challenge, you you might have to look outside the military. Although there, there are other organizations you could have joined to try to like push yourself further. But just from your perspective... What were what was the thing you wanted from growth? Because there's lots of ways to grow. Yeah, that really push you to make the decision to, to to leave the military. Yeah, I think kind of what compelled me, or I guess the thing I really enjoyed when I was deployed was helping the partner force. Like I really enjoyed watching them get better than they were, and I really watched. I really enjoyed like seeing the confidence being instilled in the men and watching them get across the objective better than they had, or getting their guys out of there faster than they otherwise would have, or like helping them see the enemy. And, in ways that they didn't see before. Like that stuff really, when I left Kunduz the last time, I felt like the unit was better um, because of things we did. And so that really inspired me. Uh, what what frustrated me is that sometimes that doesn't align with like short-term objectives. Sometimes the best thing for the partner force doesn't exactly translate to the metrics that are being measured in combat. And so a lot of times I found myself having to do what was best for partner force, but communicate it in a way that um was still palatable like you know you know the powers above me yeah and it was an inconsistency that like i had to navigate but it wasn't something that i wanted to dedicate myself towards if that makes sense it does yeah um so that was part of the reason I was like okay i like doing this stuff but i want to i want to give it like my full effort i want to help people do those things for real i don't want to have to like try and walk both sides of the fence and, and come to like a negotiated agreement so that was when i decided that hey maybe the military is not best for me so this is like during your 2018 deployment? Uh, yeah. Yeah, more or less. I mean, it started, think started thinking in 2017. Right. And then 2018. And to be honest, a little bit in the Q course as well. Um, just candidly, I thought it was like not, not the most professional experience. And so uh, 
as I was going through it, I was like, hey, this is the culture they're trying to instill on like future Green Berets. Um, it, it just might not be something I, I understand fully or something I just might not want to be a part of. Um, but I also didn't want to quit. And I also still want to do the mission. So I was like, hey, maybe this is a one-off thing or maybe, maybe it isn't. Um, but that was probably when it first started like uh, started peaking itself in my, in my head probably. Yeah. And that's hit or miss. I mean, yeah. I had a pretty great experience in the Q course. Yeah. I mean, like some minor interactions, like every organization has a couple of people that probably shouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, it was great for me, but yeah. And on the other side, you're, you're happy you stuck with it. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I'll say the Q course as, as a whole, like there's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some awesome parts to it. And like, Hey, there's nothing wrong with being candid. Like I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to be an apologist for them. I'm just saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's some really, there's some awesome parts like, uh, like unconventional warfare, like understanding that whole mission set is su super complex and super thoughtful and just like how they try to explain us to navigate that I thought was very valuable as well as like how to interact with people, like understand, you know, how to drive people. Yeah, yeah. I for sure got better at it. Yeah, it's awesome. Better. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Um, yeah, there's just, you know, there's a couple instances where I thought, you know, this isn't how I would build an organization. Yeah. And so, like, as you made that choice, like, what resources did you find? Um, and what did you think about education? What did you think about uh, how you wanted to manage your, your transition out of the military and into the private sector? Yeah. So, I guess I kind of started thinking about, hey, what are the things I like in the military that, that can translate to the civilian world? And that was my partner force interaction. Like, hey, I'd like, I want to try and help organizations in the way I did militarily, but on the business end. And so I thought, okay, well, how am I doing it militarily? And really I'm doing it with like us resources and then like my own experiences. So, um, so I was like, okay, well, if I need to do this in the civilian side then I either need to start getting, I need to start getting experience in order to like, be able to like be value added for an organization that might be struggling. So I wanted to do that as quick as I could. So I started, I signed up for an online MBA at FSU. I did it because it was like a fairly, it was a fairly well-renowned online school. Um, it allowed me to waive my GRE um, if I was a good school, if I was a good student at school. And then it was close to uh, seventh group so that I could go talk to them if I needed to. Um, so that was like my decision to, to do that education. And then. Did you cover that with the GI Bill or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that was like my first step. And then in earnest, I started looking at like what's life so it's looked like this kind of towards the end of my second deployment and that's towards the end of my second deployment is when i started looking at actually no pre-mission train up for the second deployment was when i first heard about stanford ignite through a buddy he was like hey hey man like what are you thinking i'm like hey i think i'm think i'm getting out he was a year ahead of me he had just gotten out he was working for palantir and i was like hey how's your well how's your transition you know what what could you have done better which is a really good question if you're trying to get out ask people who just got out because feel like you learn all the resources exactly at the wrong time. So if you can ask the people that know the resources yeah, are, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so he was, he said, Hey, the one thing that I didn't do that I wish I did. And that I've heard the most about is the Stanford Ignite program. Um, and, and so I looked it up and it was also like kind of similar to what I wanted to do professionally and like helping organizations. Like I, I thought a way to do that might be the search fund route, which, which we can, uh, I mean, I don't know much about it other than looking it up myself. Um, but it's something I'm, I'm interested in now. Um, but yeah, so I, I using it, what he told me, and then kind of knowing that search funds originated in California or originated in Stanford, I started looking in earnest at Stanford night program. Okay, cool. 
So, I mean, I think most people probably know, unless this is the first thing they listen to, but Stanford Ignite, we're out here right now. We just finished, graduated. Yeah. Um, and it's a four-week program, three and a half. Yeah. Um, focused on entrepreneurship, innovation, break you down into teams of six, uh, and your team of six will work on a venture. And it's a venture that someone from the program brought with them, and we voted on it. Yeah. Um, and you kind of learn by failing, learn by doing. Yeah. Uh, and then take a whole bunch of classes with some of the best professors in the world yeah. uh, teaching, Yeah, which is incredible that they volunteer their time, some of the top professors at Stanford to come teach us. It feels like you're stealing. It feels like you're right. stealing people's time because you're like, this guy is too smart for me. And like, I feel like I'm misusing his time because of how much I don't know. Yeah, I felt like that every time <laughs> yeah. I asked a question. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I almost want to start my questions with, I'm sorry. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I feel I, the exact same way. I mean, the education's like bar none. I mean, you're in Stanford, and like, you know, their GS, their their school of business is known as like one of the best, if not the best, in the country. So to like have this program for vets and to hear from the same people that go to that two year school, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's an awesome opportunity. And so you know, as you kind of look back on it, obviously the people are incredible, and other people have already said it. So it's off the table but yeah. what's the thing that you took away from the program the most like the most valuable thing that you're going to walk away with yeah uh so this is what i really appreciated in the mil in the military i kind of alluded to this already but you find yourself in a problem set and you might not necessarily look for the best solution to solve that problem but you might look instead for the most defendable solution or the easiest solution because almost as important as the solution is how you can communicate it, that narrative to your bosses. And so in a, in, in, in two situations where you might have the, the best solution, but could be hard to articulate, or you might have an easier solution that's easy to articulate and aligns more so with organizational goals. Yeah. You might pick, you might start with that solution and then figure out how to defend it back to the problem set. And I didn't know I was doing that to the degree I was until I came to Stanford, until I saw how they solve problems which was really understand the problem and then try and stumble forward, figure out where you're screwing up and then reiterate and do it again and do it again. And slowly but surely you'll get to a solution that will figure out your problem. Right. And that was, you, you, like in the military, you just don't know. You just don't know what what's driving. You just don't know what's what you've learned. It's hard to like be introspective and like understand like, hey, these are the thought processes I've been doing for X amount of years. And especially if you're being successful, you think, you think you're doing it right. And maybe you are doing it right in that context, but in the Stanford context. But you might not even know why you're yeah, doing it right. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, I do it right because I can communicate my narrative. Like, is that right? Is that even, Yeah. is that something to be valued? Like, maybe it is, but in Stanford, it's not. <laughs> and so, and so that was good. Uh, changing my mind to understand that like, hey, I, I might be putting these huge biases in like solution sets when really I should be focusing on problem sets. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a really good answer. Like <laughs> I just say that, but like you just articulated something that I think I'd thought about, yeah. but not deeply enough to like fully understand it. Yeah. And that's totally right. I, I mean, I, I always thought about it. Like I understand the problem because that's super important. It's hard to do. Yeah. Um, and then look for a solution. But the reality is exactly what you said. Like be comfortable with the fact you might not have the solution right away. Yeah. And you got to fail and learn and fail and learn. And yeah. the faster you can do that, the more you iterate, you know, the better your solution will be yeah. if you're learning the right way. Yeah. And then it like, I mean, it starts drawing on like kind of like philosophical topics or like topics that can bleed into like outside, like how you view 
just your work environment, but like, okay, if you understand the problem, but you don't really know which direction to head to, like, where, which direction is your first step or how do you, how do you decide where to step first? Um, and that's like kind of a, that can be a conversation of like, Hey, personal values are like where you want your life goals to be or what you're trying to accomplish in this life while also understanding that like you can't interpret everything that's happening to you. And that like, sometimes you're just responding to your environment uh, and hoping that you're being consistent with your values. Um, so it's, it can get kind of like, it can get heady, but it's good. Like the contrast between what Stanford teaches you and what you've been learning, because I think it helps challenge some of the concepts you've been using up until this experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for that answer. I just, <laughs> I just got smarter. No, man, that's just a man talking. He's lost in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think is North this way. North might be this way. Well, yeah. now I think it's this way. Yeah, exactly. Well done. Yeah. What are the trees telling? Great. Right, now I'm yeah. following you. <laughs> so, you know, as you, it, you, you alluded to the search fund thing and I think this dovetails nicely into like what you think you're doing next, but yeah. if you can talk about like what you know about a search fund, what yeah. attracted you to it and, yeah. and just to, I guess, to foreshadow, like that's most likely what you're trying to do post Stanford Ignite, right? Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, I hope so. So kind of talking back to like what my, I think my biggest weaknesses are is that business experience. Like I want to be able to evaluate opportunities and then help businesses achieve those opportunities. So I think the path that most aligns with those personal goals or those personal weaknesses is a search fund route, which is you like take a company using investors money and then you acquire that company based off uh, criteria or things that you think you can improve in that company. And then you run that company for five to seven years and then you exit on the back end. Um, so it's almost like mini private equity, but when you acquire that company, you are the CEO. So you, you're testing your leadership skills, you're running the management, you're figuring out the operations and then you're, you're, you're leading those people and then you're, pursuing those opportunities that you evaluated during your search process. Kind of sounds like being a Green Beret or a leader in the military. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> you know, you hope your skills translate somewhat, um, but it's not, it's not easy. It's, it's a very uncertain path. And uh, I, I'm hoping like there's, I think you can get like sponsored or unsponsored. You know, I'm hoping for a sponsorship because I think the upfront part is the searching for the company, which is a significant part of your time. Yeah. It's like two years. I think they template out. So non-trivial, right? So yeah. you're searching for a company for two years. You yeah. probably don't even know what you're doing for the first six months. So yeah. you're, you're trying to figure that out and realizing, okay, I've wasted a fair amount of time. Yeah. You get a process down, then you start getting good. Yeah. And it probably still takes you, what, six months to a year to find a company that's viable, yeah. that meets your criteria Yeah, and like, and wants to be sold. Yeah. Well, and, you're, and you're doing it on your own merit, which like yeah. as a man who just admitted he has no experience, like you know, it's like the blind leading the blind. So uh, that's why, like, I think the mentorship's important, at least yeah. for me, because even if I'm struggling for two years, if I'm getting mentorship for two years, I'm at least getting value added. And so when you say, you know, a, a mentor based program yeah. versus non, what, what does that mean for somebody who's just heard about search funds for the first time? Yeah, I think it's like a funded search. So like Got someone it. believes in you. And so they'll help you over like pay your salary and they'll pay your salary to search. And obviously, like when you're looking for opportunities and stuff, because they've already put some money at you, they'll, they'll, they're open to feedback on like how you're searching and what you're searching for and opportunities. And that conversation is just a lot more back and forth as opposed to if you're unfunded where no one's, no one's funding you. And then you're kind of like, you're asking for hey use in terms of like advice, but it's not as the mentorship isn't as formalized. Got it. Yeah. 
And so unfunded, do you still have investors or are you legitimately like, hey, I'm, I'm spending my own money and I'm unemployed for for better or worse while I'm looking for this company? While you're searching? Yeah, while, yeah. while you're searching. Yeah, for, yeah, for unfunded, you're, in, you're funding your own search. And then as you find a company, then you try and pull investors in or you can communicate to investors like, hey, I understand you don't want to fund me for this, but like this is the criteria. If I find a company that meets this criteria, would you be interested in investing? And so that's it's just like with a funded search, that conversation kind of happens in the front. But then unfunded search, it's like, okay, I know you don't want to fund me now, but do you want to have this conversation if I find the company yeah. in this criteria? And then even delving into just funded searches, I, mean, I, I know I had a conversation with Anna Kappa Partners the other day, which, I mean, I, I'm brand new to, to knowing anything about search funds, yeah. period. Yeah. Um, but I think you've spoken to them as well. Could you talk a little bit about how their model is different and how it might apply to military people directly? Yeah. as I mean, I think we're like... We might be like one. I might be like one conversation in front of you in this, so I don't think I'm the expert by any means. Um, but as as they explain it to me, is that usually what happens in like a search fund or like a funded search is that they find top notch talent from privileged, not privileged, but top tier business schools. They get the best students from there, and then they say, "Okay, go look for go look for business." And they're really good at that because they have business experience and they're really good at evaluating opportunities and they're really good at picking up those businesses. But when they become the CEO, becomes very risky or it doesn't pan out as well because you have smart dudes that haven't that don't have tested leadership and so you end up seeing this risk reveal itself after the search when the company's acquired and they don't do a good job of being a ceo so anna cap is trying to hedge that a little bit by saying okay i think it's easier to teach people business than it is to teach people leadership and i would rather have someone who's a trusted leader than someone who's excellent at business if I'm going to, if they're going to eventually run a company. And so they're trying to change the model a little bit by looking for trusted leaders to help do the search fund process. And, and that's why they're looking at, at military veterans specifically, or a, an aspect of that is the military veteran community. It's like, hey, we know these guys can execute, can do leadership stuff. And so yeah. we're willing to take a little bit of a bet on them. Very cool. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's like, that would be awesome. I think uh, that'd be the opportunity I'm looking for, but it's a two-way conversation. Who knows? <laughs> they, they might not want me. <laughs> Fair. We'll see. Yeah. We'll check back in in yeah, a couple yeah. months, see how it's going. Yeah. Hey, Chris, update. They didn't want me. That's all right. Unfunded church. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, did this experience like dissuade you from search funds at all? Did it make anything else look more attractive than you thought it was coming in? Or are you still preset on on the search fund route? Yeah. Just because, I mean, the, the transaction cost is relatively yeah. high, right? You're going to yeah. be looking for a company for somewhere between one and two years. Yeah. If you find one and are successful, sure, you become the CEO and you could do that for 10 years. Or you could do it for four. Yeah. Um, but there's a long time to look, especially if what percent of people end up not finding companies at the end of that two-year search period? Yeah. I think it's like 30 or 40% like end up just like exiting like, hey, we didn't find a search. Yeah. So like not insignificant. Yeah. No, not at all. Um, yeah. So I think if it's an unfunded search, I, I probably won't pursue that because I, I want that two years of mentorship. Like I want the business experience and to mm -hmm. just kind of run around and cold call for businesses. I, I don't, I don't see the experience there or not as much as I could have gotten with a funded search. So then I'm like, okay, looking at how to evaluate companies or other opportunities to evaluate companies and help them manage through growth or turnaround or, or whatever. So that might be, I might what my, that might broaden our scope to like, Hey, some sort of ideally like operational role in private equity, or maybe you're part of a company that was just acquired by private equity and they need to grow they need to expand in different markets and like, Hey, you can be a part of that team. Um, but that's like, 
it's not like make or break with the search fund thing. It's more of, hey, where where do I think I can get the experience to uh, ultimately help companies that are underperforming perform better? Yeah. But and then did anything become more attractive as like a a backup? Like if you didn't do search fund route, entrepreneurship, innovation, tech, or or even seeing all that, you you like the approach of looking for a tangible business where you can come in as a you know strategic leader, CEO, and, yeah. and run it. Yeah, I think I like that uh, more so. I think so. We saw we saw SRI. They have a pretty cool model, and I don't know exactly how it works, but I know they do a lot of like research projects in the DOD or as a nonprofit. Yeah. So for those who don't know, like SRI is a, is a unique company. It's yeah. super interesting. Uh, they're not for profit, but that doesn't mean that they're, they're anti-profit No, in the sense that like they're making money. I think it's like, I think it's like Stark Industries at Iron Man 3. Like, yeah. Like they right. make money, but now they're like, they've gone green. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but if something's too successful, they spin it off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, they invented the first mouse for a computer. They've invented all sorts of cool technologies. Like I know I've seen the Boston uh, Dynamics or Boston Robotics videos. Yeah. And they have better ones apparently at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like Tony Stark, but for good. Yeah, exactly. It's like Tony Stark at the end. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, so then as I, as I understand it, like it gets to a point, like if one of their, if one of their creations or discoveries or inventions or whatever becomes like too profitable, they'll kind of offload it because they are not for profit and they'll either go in, someone will either buy it or it'll operate as its own company. And so that would be like another opportunity I didn't think of that Stanford showed me is like, Hey, there's opportunities that like people might divest things off of companies that you might be able to operate because right. That might be a role for a young guy or for a guy who's been in the company for a couple of years, but wants to do something like that. Because well, Especially for veterans, right? So yeah. I think, a, a, I don't want to put a percentage on it because I don't know off the top of my head, but a large amount of their business is with the, the government yeah. and it's with serving soldiers. Yeah. Uh, I think we met with the CEO yesterday of one of their spinoffs, yeah. Raven, Ravenswood, that yep. does exactly, like, exactly that, works on training platforms for soldiers. Yeah. So... Yeah, he didn't a lot have of like direct a, ties and correlation. But. Yeah, and he didn't have like it. Didn't sound like he had a huge technical like because that's like one of our big weaknesses. Like we don't, we're not super depth, we're not super deep in like computer skills or right technology or whatever. We're not we're like we're the ultimate generalist, but like a generalist without a team is just like useless. So right, it's it's like trying to figure out you know what role we fit into, and that's where we saw one of the guys seemed like he fit in that role. Like, hey, I'm not a technical expertise, but I can drive operations and I can run a company. Yeah. And he had had like 23 years in the military. So it's not like you can't end up in a role like that if you decide to serve a whole career. Yeah. But, you know, getting at this point, you'll have more opportunities for that. Yeah. Which is probably awesome for the guys that are, because, you know, you and I are we're pretty young, like nine, 10 years. But I know some people that are retiring, you know, they feel like the sun is set in terms of professional career. But I think he was one of the guys just, you know, to, to be yeah. a counterpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Proves is not the case. Yeah. So you got to know where to look and that's the hardest part, right? Like yeah. just like you said, when you were talking about every time you talk to somebody, ask them, what do you wish you would have known or would you mess up? Yeah. Yeah. So many opportunities that people just don't know about, which is, I mean, a large reason why I'm doing this. Yeah. Yeah. This is super cool because I mean, I don't, did you know anything about Stanford Ignite? No. I mean, I found out about Stanford Ignite through my team sergeant yeah. who had served with the guy who came here three years ago. Okay. And he was like, hey, man, I think you should check this out. Yeah. He's like, call this guy. And I was like, but I don't know the guy. Like, call him anyway. He's great. He's like, like, hey, this is the smartest guy I've ever worked with. All right. Just, yeah. just call him. Yeah. 
I was like, all right, Justin, I'll call him. Um, so I did talk to him about it. He said nothing but the best uh, about the program. And so, you know, it, in my search to just try to like get data points to make sure I didn't scream in the wrong direction. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to come learn more. Yeah. So. And that's kind of like, for whatever reason, like Stanford Knight's like completely word of mouth right now. Um, yeah. Which is good for people like you and I who like might not get Probably it. Probably wouldn't have gotten it. <laughs> yeah. If it's open to everybody, it might not be as, might not be as good for us. Yeah. Um, but since we're on the back end of it, now we can share it to everyone else. Yeah. So for all the, uh, the Chris Baines and Kevin Kerr's out there, good luck. You're probably not going to make it. <laughs> yeah, man. Sorry. You got to one more program before you don't make the cut anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Way smarter people than you are going to make it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, with that said, this, this cohort of people is really incredible. Yeah. Uh, like I usually joke that I'm not the smartest person, like I'm the dumbest person in the room. Yeah. Uh, but now I feel like I'm the dumbest person within like a couple of square miles. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of similar to like when I was in China and I realized that people were working harder. Like right. Now I realize that people are smarter and working harder. And it's like, oh man, I'm just like continuing to fall down yeah. that totem pole. <laughs> I don't know if there's a hack for this. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Except accept my place in the world, I think. <laughs> <laughs> And with that said, like, you know, it, you're going to graduate uh, from your MBA that you did online, but now you're kind of like doing a little bit of brick and mortar too in December, right? Yeah. And you're also, you're out of the military completely in December? Uh, end of August, I'll start terminal leave. In August? Yep. Okay. Yep. And then I'll get paid through December. So I'm kind of like double dipping to a degree, but not really because the GI Bill, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it pays for me because I'm still serving. So yeah, I don't okay. think you get like the BH or whatever. I don't think so either. It's a little pay for school, but yeah, yeah. you're kind of on your own for yeah. housing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then looking for a search fund, funded search. Yeah. So that you can start that. Yeah. Um, what else do you have going on or what else are you thinking about? Because I mean, in spite of everything you said about being like, you know, just screaming in a direction and going 100%, it sounds like you kind of think things through Yeah. Um, as you go through a process. So. Yeah. What, what's your thoughts? Like, and not just with business, like for life. I mean, we've yeah. moved around a lot. We've deployed a lot. Um, what's your thought about like what you want out of life? Cause it can't just all be about work. Yeah. And, and that's a great question that I might not have a complete answer for. Like the military is very good at showing you the next steps and like they're, we call it, I mean, it's called military lingo, but like showing you the next 25 meter target. Yeah. Right. And so you can knock down 25 meter targets all day, but you might not, you might look back and be like, how did I get here? And that's, that's kind of the transition I'm in now is I think professionally, I kind of know where our weakness are and where I want to go. Yeah. But like personally, what are the things that I value the most and where am I trying to go? Um, or like, and how am I trying to get there? Like, so for me, I've been very regimented or very there's aspects of my life where I've been very disciplined. And now, um, I think at that it's the sacrifice has been sometimes passion or maybe sometimes, inspiration and like hey i'd rather be focused and disciplined instead of like pursuing my passion or like you know finding out like what i really care about yeah bro. yeah like you know what I mean? yeah, exactly but now i find myself caring more about that because now there is no one's telling me what to do no one's like yeah you want to go to ranger school next or yeah you want to go to special forces like people will look at you and like i don't know you tell me what drives you right and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh wow yeah, exactly so I, I don't know man like i think i have more of a professional feel uh than i do a personal feel um yeah so that's like something i really struggle with i think uh i get a little afraid of stability of comfort um because i feel like it's i just feel like it's so easy to be comfortable and it can it can stop you from wanting to do great things 
Um, but at the same time, it can also be like a destabilizing effect. Like if you're completely, if you're like living in chaos and you can like provide no direction for yourself either. So that's like what I'm trying to struggle with now is like, Hey, if I don't, and that's like super hard to be like, how do you stay unstable? Like, that's not like, it's like innovation inside of an organization. Like, I don't know how to like be stable, but also like creative or like passionate. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a balance, right? Yeah. Whether you're like Christian, Muslim, everybody, like if you believe in like with what's like the religion and star wars whatever you know there's a force you gotta have a balance to it there's yeah. the yin and the yang and like yeah eastern religions yeah you, you can't be either all at once and i think that a lot of people have talked to you like there is no work-life balance yeah there's just finding your flow yeah you know and so like there are gonna be times where you're working real hard yeah and there's you're not balancing that out but then you gotta take a recalibrate at some point and like come back to it yeah yeah and that yeah and that's probably like what i'm trying to figure out is like Hey, where that flow is or like where that calibration because like right now i'm kind of like professional like hey i'll just move in this professional direction um and like i'm kind of like discounting my personal life to a degree um but i also realize that like that's fine when everything's going well but when things don't start going well like you probably want some sort of like stability to like fall back on when, when things yeah. aren't going well yeah if you derive too much value from yeah. what you do professionally like it becomes your identity which yeah you end up becoming yeah stunted in your growth and like other areas of life yeah so like i, I think i mean not gonna bs on here like you've heard about this book a couple weeks ago when we were having dinner with somebody but um designing your life is like a really good place to start yeah um so i learned about that book through the commit foundation they sent it to me and like it was a really good way to start to map out what's important to you yeah and you put things in a couple different bins and like figure out okay like i'm gonna right now i'm gonna wait work over personal but like that's still important to a degree yeah and personal is not one thing either right there's yeah. hobbies you like to do it's your love life yeah. it's, it's family it's yeah. friends yeah. so you divide all that up and see wait what's most important and then also like how you're going to balance the whole thing out yeah or at least willingly ignore one of them yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly well and that's like you know and that's like the rub man because yeah. your circumstances your circumstances in front of you might might lead you to one of those buckets but then circumstances six months later might favor a completely different one and so it's like you know do i listen to the circumstances or do i listen to my buckets or do i listen to the structure that i created for myself it's like and then you look back and you're like okay was i happy with those decisions whether it worked out or it didn't work out and so it's like you know they're not easy questions no and so- <laughs> you figure that stuff out man you'll make a lot of money just answering questions yeah. for that so yeah anybody who's struggling with that stuff give me a call because uh, I'll struggle with you. Sometimes suffering enjoys company. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and with that, uh, before we wrap up, is there any way that you, you'd recommend people who are in, either interested in search funds or like if there's somebody in, in you know high school that's looking at West Point or any other stage of life uh, to reach out to you and maybe maybe talk or maybe they're just suffering and want to? No, nah, I mean you guys just have to suffer yourself. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Totally joking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, man. You can always reach out to me, uh, Kevin Kerr, K E R R. Um, you What's know, best, LinkedIn, Gmail? Yeah, you can email me or LinkedIn. Link, I mean, whatever, dude. I don't care. Hit me up whenever. Uh, email is kcker one three one at gmail.com. And then LinkedIn is Kevin Kerr. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. If I stay on the search fund route, obviously, I can help with that. But, you know, I don't think I'm too much helpful there. But I can absolutely talk about military experiences or stuff that I've talked about on this podcast, you know. Whatever, man. I'm happy to, happy to talk about whatever. Awesome. Maybe, uh, you know. Give somebody some pointers in the gym. I know I need some. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. If you're trying to pick up pros in the gym, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> 
hey man, heard about you on the podcast. I want to get your thoughts on like pros in the gym. Like, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, whatever you need, man. So I said I was a generalist. I'm an expert here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks so much for your time, Kevin. Yeah, man. Great having you. Yeah, you too, Chris. Thanks. Yeah.